0: So, Nikiso, what if I was to ask you, could you imagine Mm -hmm. that the most iconic company in the history of Silicon Valley is likely to be acquired Hmm. by the unlikeliest of candidates? What would you think those two companies are?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Let's get into that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, the place where we keep you informed about emerging technologies, the innovation, global trends that are changing the world of business. I'm your host, Nikisa Mayoza, and with me always, Mike Grandinetti. We're happy to be here with you today, uh, so let's, let's get into it. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the challenges of large enterprises having continuous innovation, let alone disruptive innovation. Um, as you heard in the intro, we'll be talking about... Hewlett-Packard and Xerox. <laughs> I love it. Uh, This move by uh, Xerox to acquire HP, these two companies that ostensibly established themselves as the fathers of innovation labs in Silicon Valley uh, through the Xerox Park and the HP Labs, it's truly fascinating news, Mike. Uh, So why don't we get into it? I know you have a personal history with these companies, so I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, and and there's a lot to unpack here, Nikiso, but you're right. I do have a personal history, and I definitely want to share a little bit of it. But what I want people to understand is that Hewlett-Packard's contribution Mm -hmm. To innovation and Silicon Valley cannot be overstated. And the founders, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard's contribution to what we consider to be meritocracy culture, which we take for granted today, was not common. In fact, it was unheard of when they started that company. These guys started it off. They literally started it all. And and everybody from Steve Jobs to Mark Benioff have sung the praises of mm-hmm. this company. So let's start from the news this week and then let's go back to the beginning. I like it. Xerox made an unsolicited bid for Hewlett Packard. Now let's be clear Hewlett Packard has reconstituted itself into a number of separate businesses. Mm-hmm. One was a medical business. Another was an instrument and test business. Then there's Hewlett Packard Enterprises and there's HP. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about HP, the company that many people know because they probably own at least one HP printer or an HP calculator or or an HP laptop. (laughs) There you go. So what's remarkable is that Xerox is one third of the size of Hewlett Packard. And yet it is making a significant move. It's offering a 20% premium on the closing price of HP of just a couple of days ago. So before we talk about that in detail, let's just talk a bit about history. Yep. In 1939, in the depths of the Great Depression, Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard in what is now the National Historic Landmark, the HP Garage, mm-hmm. on Prune Ridge Road in Cupertino, California, started the Hewlett Packard company and their very first company customer was Disney and they were making audio oscillators for the wonderful Disney classic movie Fantasia. Okay. And that was the beginning of what's become truly the granddaddy of Silicon Valley. Hewlett and Packard were educated at Stanford, but back then there was no real industry in Silicon Valley. So they went East. Mm -hmm. They worked for general electric And they did not in any way buy into the classic East Coast establishment approach of large corporations where there was a tremendous chasm between the executives and the employees, where the executives had their own washrooms, their own cafeterias, their own parking spots, etc. So when they came back East to establish their company, they decided it would be very much a company of equals. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter where your parents went to school, didn't matter how much money you had in the bank. All that really mattered is that you showed up with your heart and your brain every day and you had integrity and you worked hard. And how was that received in in general by the people that were joining that? Well, it was a remarkably refreshing and almost unheard of kind of experience. And although I joined Hewlett-Packard, you know, decades after, Um, the founding, right? Mm -hmm. I joined HP as a very young engineer in Silicon Valley. The first year it was ever, um, it was named America's most admired corporation by Fortune Magazine, the first year they'd ever run that. Mm. And it was a company that every engineer in the country wanted to work for the way that today it might be a Google or up until recently a Facebook.
1: So the impact of that cultural moment, right? And that, and that, uh, that ethos in terms of how people work, that's still resonating today. All these companies are sensibly doing the same thing, mirroring
0: that culture. They really are. And they're struggling, of course, to maintain that culture mm-hmm. or to make it authentic. It's one thing to say that we care about meritocracy and we treat all people equal. It's another thing to actually do it. Right. But even in the mid-1980s, which was, you know, 35, 40 years after its founding, it was such a unique cultural touchstone that while most of my fellow students were taking jobs with big East Coast companies... Mm-hmm. And I remember walking into one interview with Pratt & Whitney Aircraft, which is where one of my very closest friends wound up working, and it was right out of an Orwellian nightmare. (laughs) It was just row after row of sheet metal desks. And I just couldn't imagine that this is what, you know, a professional career could look like. So I held on and was lucky enough to get an offer from HP. And it was really just the most extraordinary four and a half years of an introduction to the world of business and innovation that I have the most fond memories of even today. That's great. So as you said, Nikiso, right, Hewlett Packard Labs was legendary. And of course, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center or Xerox Xerox Park Park, was also legendary. And and anybody who is with an Apple device of any kind uh, benefits from the legacy of Xerox Park the graphical user interface, mm-hmm. which I, I can assure our younger listeners, um, <laughs> we had command lines. And before that, we had literally punch cards. Okay. So the, when Steve Jobs saw the graphical user interface, right, his vision said, I have seen the future of computing. Yeah. Now, nobody was anywhere within decades of being able to appropriate that vision Mm -hmm. and turn it into a commercial reality, right? And it's changed everything. But this is just one example of the extraordinary number of projects that were underway at PARC. Unfortunately, uh, Xerox was just an old school company. They were a copier company. Mm -hmm. And although they had this remarkable team of experts, right? Um, Bob Metcalf, who won a prize for the invention of the local area network, Okay. Um, Yeah.
1: Right. The father of the Internet. Right. And he was,
0: (laughs) you know, just another researcher working in Park. Right. And so, you know, the local area network was born at Xerox Park. It was an infinite amount of, you know, innovation that was happening there. But they didn't have the wherewithal to go beyond their copier head mindset. Yeah. And all of those great inventions were essentially licensed, if not stolen um, by great entrepreneurs like Eric Benamou at uh, at the com- at the Time 3com yeah. which really was the first company to commercialize the local area network or of course jobs
1: yeah and i think we were talking about that during the break that uh, you know xerox park and all these these big companies had some amazing ideas being germinated internally and yet commercializing them was the biggest challenge
0: yeah and we're going to definitely unpack that because really what i'm hoping we can do with this episode is talk about why Large corporations struggle, even with extraordinary science, extraordinary research, Mm -hmm. and technology, why they struggle so in vain to commercialize it.
1: Fantastic. I think that's probably a good time to take a break. Yeah. We'll be right back. So we're back. Uh, So, Mike, I, I have a question for you. I mean, so what made HP what they were at the time? What made them this big powerhouse? Uh, that was able to, to really push innovation uh, to the edge and, and be disruptive in their time? What, what, what was it exactly?
0: Well, you, you know, and it's, it's such a great question, and there's so many lessons, but let me try to boil down to the, the top three or so. Mm-hmm. First of all, leadership. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard did not view themselves as the smartest guys in the room. These were not men that were there to tell you how to do their job. They recruited really top level engineering talent, not not with the same um, focus that, you know, Google has today, where if you don't come from Stanford or Berkeley or MIT or Georgia Tech or Carnegie Mellon, you're not one of us. Right. Mm -hmm. They they recruited smart people. But let's be very clear. They had a no asshole hiring policy, Hmm. if I could be so direct. I like that. And so there was this first of all, this extraordinary focus on intrapreneurship. Mm -hmm. And so Hewlett Packard organized itself in a way where they had a lot of very small business units. And if a business unit got to be more than 100 people, they would spin out another business unit. So in many ways, it became almost this incubator Mm. of entrepreneurship. And what would happen would be very young, typically engineers would be given remarkably responsible roles as general managers and as senior executives of the business units that they were put in charge of. And in many ways, they were just startups. Mm. So they had the Hewlett Packard logo, right? And everyone knew the Hewlett Packard logo stood for engineering excellence. Right. And they had a remarkable degree of autonomy to work on problems for engineers, typically, (laughs) And, you know, and they benefited from all of this world-class research that was happening at HB Labs under Joel Birnbaum. Right. So you had what, you know, when I think about one of my heroes, Daniel Pink, mm-hmm. purpose, autonomy, and mastery, right? The sense of purpose at HP was, you know, they wanted to be innovative, right? So the people that were there, they, they heard the clarion bell. We want to work on the leading edge of innovation, Hewlett Packard was the first company to use what percentage of our revenues are coming from products that we've released in the last two to three years. Hmm. So they were way ahead of the curve on that, right? They really were looking at the refresh rate of their product line long before people even could imagine what, why that might've been important.
1: And we're seeing that innovation refresh rate in that cycle, right? It plays out. I mean, most people would associate it uh, with—the easiest, I think, thing to to connect to is, uh, you know, phones, right? Yeah. They they come out so quickly, right? And it's not just the Moore's Law Factor. It's just the fact that there is a desire to refresh this technology, to keep pushing innovation to see where you can go. Absolutely. Love that, love that.
0: So that was important. I I think another key piece of it was—and this is a very powerful example I will never forget, but it says everything about the culture. There was a period, an inevitable downturn in the computer industry Mm -hmm. where— all of Hewlett-Packard's competitors at the time would say out of one side of their mouth, our employees are our most important asset. And then Digital Equipment Corporation, and this is, this is a throwback to, wow. to earlier times, that, Wang, that is a Wang <laughs> Prime Computer, Data General, Wow! all of these companies said, yes, our employees are very important, but we're going to have to do some layoffs now. And this is what Hewlett Packard did that was so different. And that just brings such incredible engagement and loyalty to a culture. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard said, okay, we're going to have everybody work nine out of every 10 days. So every one of our employees will take a 10% pay cut, Mm -hmm. but they will work 10% less. We, as the executive team, will take a 40% pay cut, Mm. okay? And these were much bigger numbers, so, so you can imagine as an employee, seeing that your leaders yeah. were willing to bear a significant amount of the financial burden of this. Of course, what happened was on that 10th day, everybody showed up because we were a team, because mm. our leaders walked the talk. And so to me, it's, it shouldn't sound so profound, but for whatever reason, it's such an uncommon thing to do.
1: Yeah. You know, Mike, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing to me because what that really makes me think of is, and I, I think you can pick a story from, you know, the, even as as early as last week where CEOs getting fired, um, walk away with, I mean, millions of dollars, oh, hundreds of millions, yeah. tens of millions. And yet the workforce that might've been part of that company is getting cut. And these guys are, are barely at the minimum wage. So that's
0: exactly that's right. A, I
1: mean, that's a, that's a, a fundamentally amazing cultural shift that- um, It is. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds amazing.
0: It was so far ahead of its time. And the last thing I'll say about, you know, and, and this is, I think, so important, right? Leaders are servants first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Hewlett and Packard very much wanted to make sure that every single employee understood the history and the culture. If you were a Hewlett-Packard employee and there was any likelihood that you would face a customer There was a one-week orientation in Palo Alto, California at their headquarters where you would personally get to meet Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard. This is when the company was doing $10 billion in revenue. Hmm. And when the company had tens of thousands of employees, you would meet Bill and Dave and you would take a tour of their cube. Mm -hmm. They were in cubes just like everyone else. Now, they had nicer artwork in their cubes. <laughs> I got my posters at Spencer's for my cube. They had some original oil works. I like but it. But they, they were one of us in the tenet of management by wandering around where they would just show up at a business unit and they would just poke around and they would just connect the dots and they would share their perspective on a design or a customer problem, right? They were immersed in the business. And this is one of the key lessons to me, right, which is you can't dial it in as a leader. You are not the emperor. You are not the king. You are a part of the team. And the the loyalty and the energy and the engagement that you engender when there's a belief that your leader is in the foxhole with you, right? is extraordinary. So I'll share another example because you and I, you know, connected through Rutgers. So one of the the great companies to come out of New Jersey recently was the company called Celgene. Mm -hmm. Celgene was recently bought for close to $100 billion. Celgene has become one of the world's largest and most profitable cancer drug companies. It was founded by a Rutgers PhD in chemistry, a gentleman by the name of Sal Barra. And in many ways, Sal Barra embodied the ethos of Hewlett and Packard. He had, he was a PhD, but he had the human touch and he was constantly on the road, constantly out with the people all over the world, making sure that the employees felt like they were being listened to, that they were being a part of the culture. And, you know, under that period, Celgene thrived. And at some point, Salbara retired mm-hmm. and the gentleman that replaced him, a guy by the name of Bob Hugin, Bob Hugan was part of the Chris Christie inner circle and then ran for the Republican governorship of New Jersey and was defeated. But he had been an investment banker Mm -hmm. and he was all about the numbers. And so he kind of barricaded himself in his office. He was very aloof. And at that point in time, a lot of the Celgene R&D labs lost a lot of their productivity. So this was a company that they the company is a clear point of demarcation where he came in as a leader and their pipeline started to dry up yeah which is why they ultimately were acquired
1: yeah, they had well, no choice. I mean, we've seen tons of examples of leaders yeah. that don't do well. I mean, Microsoft, most recently, right? You Absolutely, know, perfect look, look at the shift. You know, once Barma left, yeah. I mean, it was incredible what Sachin Nadella's been able to do there, and remarkable. And, and I think you know, it's it's really interesting. This this discussion for me is is a is a is a fascinating touchpoint in terms of thinking about all the companies where there is really a successful culture. Uh, it, it you know, I'd be curious to find out how many of those companies, not not the new startups now, but I'm talking about the ones that are you know twenty years ago something like that, how much they're influenced by some of the experiences they've had at companies like the HPs, right? Where the culture was fundamentally different and really welcomed people to make risks and was you know there's a, there was a meritocracy and reward system there that just came from allowing you to 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 try and fail, right?
0: And Niki, so honestly, I think it's the essence of innovation and success. i th- yeah. I'd say. It's been 20 plus years since I worked at HP, but the lessons I took away there have fueled me to this day. Mm -hmm. I would also say that when I get up in front of some of my students or I give uh, talks, for those people who have never had the good fortune or the blessing of working in one of these great cultures, Mm -hmm. it's a bridge too far. They can't imagine it. They can't imagine that there are actually cultures where people are team players, where, where people have one another's backs, where people, you know, are given the ability to fail, where they're given the ability to experiment and, and, and bounce off walls, right? Because they've never seen it. Yeah. And therefore they can't imagine that it's possible. So when you've had the good fortune of being in a culture like this, you want to bring that with you wherever you go. The default culture of any company is chaos, <laughs> uh, unless there is a leader committed, right, and Hewlett Packard had you know bill- tens of billions of dollars committed to wanting this to perpetuate long beyond their years, was. Absolutely everything. Saul Barra, John Chambers from Cisco, who picked up the phone and called 10 customers every day, who was on the road 200 days a year visiting customers, Mm. right? There's no surprise as to which companies have, you know, been sustained. Now, obviously, Chambers is gone and Cisco has has lost some of its edge as well. But to me, this is such a fundamental component because that just flows downhill. And it's amazing how quickly people are impacted by it, positively or negatively.
1: What makes me think today, I mean, so just in hearing that, I, I was thinking, I was like, wow, you know, we, we should probably at some point, maybe it's in the show notes or something, just list those companies because there, there are those, um, you know, top 100 places to work, top 100 places for innovation or whatever the case may be. I think it might be, you know, interesting for us to potentially, you know, put, put something in our show notes that says, hey, these are some companies of people today who are listening, some of our listeners are thinking, well, geez, what what companies today are doing some of this? Because there are some that are doing it and doing it really well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, uh, and, and they're large, and, and and but the workers that are there, um, you don't hear about them in the press, that there is no negative press. So it might be something to, to, to
0: think about. That's great. So why don't we take a break now and then we'll come back and we'll look at some of the other lessons and why... So many companies struggle to innovate. And and I'm gonna share some very specific experiences and name some names
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: of some companies I've had direct interaction with where they're they're the antithesis to what we've just talked about. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> we'll be right back.
1: We're back. So Mike, let's 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 continue. This is great.
0: So let me now just talk about where Hewlett Packard lost its way. Mm-hmm. And then we'll transition into some of the other companies that maybe never have found its way. Yeah. Um, so under Bill Hill and Dave Packard, they had a number of proteges. John Young and then Lou Platt were directly employed and mentored. So even after Bill and Dave rode off into the sunset, their two you know highly trained proteges continued their legacy, and the company's success continued. You know, we've had our discussions around the dot-com insanity before. Mm-hmm. And during that time, a woman by the name of Carly Fiorina. We talked about Carly as well. Yeah. Has, you know, rose to prominence. Now, in person, Car- Carly is one of the most charismatic speakers I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And that is saying something. She's a salesperson. And Hewlett-Packard, at that point, did something that was just shocking to me when they brought her in as CEO. Because, again, she's, she's got a sales background. Yep. And when she came out to Palo Alto to take over the company, she immediately gutted R&D. Really? Gutted R&D.
1: Well, so okay? that part I did not know.
0: And because, well, because she was all about keeping the stock price up, and you know, and obviously one way to do that is to reduce expenses. And so here's this world-class technology company, and the only way you remain world class is you yeah. continue to invest in R&D you gotta and keep she innovating. Gutted R&D. Wow. And you can imagine what that does to the culture of a company that has prided itself on being an innovation powerhouse. So, Hewlett Packard never really recovered from Carly Fiorina's leadership. It was a, a a tragic mistake to bring in someone with her background to run a company with that type of culture. Because she was a very much a hard charging sales executive. Mm. She had her successes, but during a very unique time, you know, during the dot-com when, when the fiber optic market was exploding and AT&T was riding that wave and they were doing all kinds of creative financing and a lot of companies weren't even paying for the technology. It was all done with equity and everything else. So what, what time, what timeline are we talking about? This is right after the dot-com implosion. So like uh, the early 2000s. Yeah. Okay. And one of her boldest moves at the time, which was incredibly controversial and completely divided the HP board, was the acquisition of Compaq Computer. And it turns out Compaq Computer is, in fact, that company that is at the heart of what is today HP, H- yes. as we're talking about, the one that Xerox is now making a move on. Hmm. Now, the the last thing I'll say before we move outside of HP is when you look at the profit of HP today, the business that's under, uh, you know, uh, a solicitation, Mm -hmm. 100% of their profit comes from ink, okay, toner. To me, that is just the absolute epitome of what you need to know about what's happened, okay? So now we're basically making money by selling toner. Wow, have we lost our way.
1: Yeah, but Kodak did the same thing, and we've mentioned it on different episodes as well, right? So these companies that... um. Yeah, you mean, to, to the point, you bring in a salesperson who then takes the, the actual core of the business, the yeah. thing that keeps it going. I did not know that that's the, the, the you know, the R&D was gutted under her. Oh, yeah, but the, the Comcast acquisition to me was...
0: Or compact yeah. uh, Sorry, compact Com- It yeah. made
1: no sense. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it really didn't.
0: Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm floored by that. Yeah. So now let's, let's look at the challenges that so many companies face, right? One of my favorite quotes is attributed to Larry Bossidy, who was one of the vice chairmen of General Electric under Jack Welsh, mm-hmm. and then went on to run a number of companies, including Honeywell. And his quote is, there is a fine line between insubordination and entrepreneurship." Mm-hmm. And what he basically means is that many people have to push the edges of what's allowable within a culture to get innovation to actually happen. Mm-hmm. I have so many students, and you and I, of course, through our affiliation at Rutgers, we have a lot of exec ed students that come yeah. in. Yeah. And it's very clear within the first day of the incredible obstacles and challenges that they face just to get their jobs done. Yep. And I know that I've had several students come up to me at the end of that four-day immersive class and say, Mike, based on everything I've heard I'm going to change companies. I, 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 and, and it's, you know, and it's a bittersweet thing, but I think God bless them for at least finally recognizing that they're pushing a rock uphill and that there's got to be another culture that's more conducive to getting things done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me share a couple of the most egregious examples that I've seen um, where companies have just been so anti-innovation that it's, it's just heartbreaking. Let's name a couple of names. The first is a company called Nestle, which we've all heard of. Mm -hmm. Nestle, several years ago, got into the health and wellness and skincare business. And they went and established innovation centers all over the world, including one right in New York City over by um, the East River. And I was asked to come in to lead a hackathon for them. And they had established, they had built this gorgeous innovation space and they put all this money into it. And they were looking to crowdsource really great ideas. And we had this incredibly powerful hackathon and all kinds of great ideas were born. And then what? where they went wrong is they brought in the corporate poobahs, okay? <laughs> Graybeards. Right. Who come from the core business. And they did not understand the difference between science coming out of the lab of Nestle mm-hmm. back in Switzerland And the kind of innovation that was being, you know, proposed by, you know, both younger professionals, but also some very competent mid-career professionals. Mm -hmm. And I saw them just absolutely clamp down and suffocate these ideas where they demoralized so many of these young entrepreneurs that were so enthusiastic and had so many promising concepts, that could have allowed Nestle to be innovative in a business that they had spent tens of billions of dollars to acquire. And I remember looking at it and saying, oh my God, they've killed it, right? And it was such a promising idea. And, and within a year, Nestle announced that they were getting out of the healthcare business, uh, the, the personal health and skincare business. And it was, it was so predictable, having sat through a couple of those meetings, sat, having sat through the first very positive hackathon and, you know, keynoted it and mentored in it and, and been a part of it, and then seeing how the finalists were then judged in yeah. the most intensive way uh, to the point where it just went south.
1: But that's a, that's a misalignment. You're, you're, you're putting people who lack imagination in the first place in places where they're completely out of their comfort zone. They're never going to make those, those, those gambles or make those moves. They're not going to do that. Yeah, you know, they, that's a, that's that's a self-preservation uh, mechanism. Uh, and I think typifies mo- most of these companies that don't innovate.
0: Well, it it shouldn't be a self-preservation mechanism. They view it. See, they view it as a zero sum game. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if you had a portfolio strategy. Yeah. You would be rooting for people to reinvent your business eventually. I'm a shareholder. I have a pension with this company. Right. I have a legacy. Mm-hmm. I want this company to succeed well beyond when I leave. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, right? Another one is AXA, A-X-A, the, yeah, they, one of the world's insurance. largest insurance companies. So yeah. a very good friend of mine, former mentee was on the innovation board. And he asked if I would get involved in a program. And the program basically was every year they did a call to their employees worldwide. We want you to come up with your most innovative business ideas. And we're going to mentor you and we're going to down select and we're going to find you know five of the best and we're going to bring you to corporate And we're going to have you present to our CEO and his executive team. And so as I got into the discussion with the woman running the innovation group, I said, so seven years in, how many of these companies have been born? (laughs) And the answer was precisely zero. And I said, that's a remarkable uh, answer. Great batting average. (laughs) Help me understand how was it? Well, we don't really try to turn these into companies. We really just try to, you know, get some ideas going. And the message very basically that I gave back to this woman, do you understand that what happens is you're actually doing yourself a disservice because these people have been energized, they're excited, and your very best, most innovative people will take that idea and they will leave. So I graciously declined the opportunity because I'm not into dog and pony shows. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is innovation groups as central cheerleading groups, right? And that's the antithesis of what an innovation group is supposed to be about. Yeah. So this is very, very interesting to me, right? These are the kinds of people that have been charged with helping innovate. So you had an innovation group at Nestle in New York City, but they were mostly powerless Yeah. and they did what they could. And then you had an innovation group at corporate in Paris, and they're basically powerless. So at the end of the day, innovation only can come from the business units, right? You can't have an innovation group off to the side, not in control of product roadmaps and not in control of the resources required to go to market.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this is a, a good example of um, you know, some of what we were talking about before that I'm fascinated uh, in referencing companies that make sense today. You know, I can name two companies that I've seen um, that are consistently, uh, you know, they're on LinkedIn, they're in the press and Entrepreneur Magazine and, and, you know, Salesforce and Workday, right? Yeah. These companies that are, Pretty massive. And yet there seems to be continuous um, dynamic energy coming out of any of the events that have attended that have those companies or the people that work there because they feel as though those cultures fundamentally do embrace those ideas. Obviously, not everything makes it to, you know, final product, but the idea of being inviting and welcoming and really allowing People who, extent, those are some of the customers. These are some of the customers for the product or users of that product. And listening, you know, which hawkins back to Steve's job. You know, you don't hire smart people, then tell them what to do. Uh, you hire them and you have them help you drive uh, better products for, for the customers. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but I, I, I love this idea that there are companies out there today. And um, I think the two examples you gave is obviously not the direction we want to go in, but there are some companies out there that are doing it. And I have to believe those people and those, the leaders of those companies have been impacted by more of the you know, Hewlett and Packard uh, ethos and, and philosophy
0: than anything else. You've landed on two of the great leaders of our time in Silicon Valley. Mark Benioff is a unique leader. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very much of the same you know, uh, family tree as Hewlett and Packard. Uh, he's a servant leader. He's very much focused on, you know, giving a lot of autonomy, even at the scale that they're at. Right, remarkable uh, the culture that they've been able to create at Salesforce.com. Yeah, and yeah. Dave Duffield, uh, you know, he started his career at Peoplesoft. That was an incredibly successful company. Mm-hmm at some point the architecture kind of got in the way as yep. they moved away from client server to the, to the internet. And he wound up selling that company to Oracle, mm-hmm. but then he went right back at it again with, with Workday. And he's another one of these just charismatic servant leaders that is all about people And which you would hope in an HR focused company would be the case, <laughs> That's correct. but that's not often the case. No. But, but what you've identified as two of the exceptional leaders of, and, and Dave's not a young guy either, no, right? Dave no. is, probably in his sixties by now, Yeah,
1: but, but still, these are still with it
0: still with it' because he loves what he does. And that passion shines through. Yeah. And so, you know, but the unfortunately the key, So there aren't as many examples as there should be, because this is not rocket science. And we've got enough beacons, enough great examples out there to say, why not? Right. Why not emulate Bill and Dave? Why not emulate Mark Benioff or Dave Duffield? Yeah or Saul Barra, or some of these really great leaders, or John Chambers, right? Because it's pretty clear what they do is very consistent. Yeah. And yet very few people have, I don't know if it's the internal fortitude, or the discipline, or the personal generosity mm-hmm. to allow themselves, even when they become successful and wealthy, to not lose sight of what got them there, and and to retain that humility, and that concern, and that compassion for other people.
1: That's great. Well, you know, obviously, Mike, you and I, we love this topic, a beautiful topic. I think that we could talk about this for, for, for a lot longer. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. So we're back. Uh, so, Mike, let's talk about the deal itself. I mean, what, what led to this deal to actually happen? I, I think our listeners are probably wondering why this is happening in the first place.
0: Yeah, I'd say there's a structural element, right? The, the printing business mm-hmm. is in secular decline. There's no question, right? There's, there's less and less people printing today. And both of these companies are struggling with profitability. Hewlett Packard has an 8 multiple, which is one of the very lowest, if not the lowest multiples in all of tech. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these are not, you know, these are not businesses that are growth businesses. The second thing that happened is I think somewhat opportunistically, Xerox's stock is up 25 to 30% this year. Hmm. HP stock is down about 18 to 20%. And then finally, Xerox was involved in a joint venture with Fujifilm, right? Ah, so it's legacy. yes. And they cashed out of that joint venture and they sold their stake and they took a $2.5 billion cash windfall. So the CEO of Xerox looked across and said, okay, we have a company where Hewlett Packard's CEO made a uh, a somewhat shocking decision to step down very early for the reason of a a family member had personal health issues. Mm -hmm. So this person was going to retire. Um, And so that was a a shot across the bow. And then they looked across and said, okay, their stock is way down. There's an opportunity for us to maybe have $2 billion in synergies Mm -hmm. by combining our operations. Now, what's amazing is Xerox is one third of the size. Yeah of Hewlett Packard, right? Xerox has roughly an $8 billion market cap mm-hmm. and HP has roughly a $30 billion market cap. So now what's amazing is our good friend, Carl Icahn, who is one of the legendary financiers of the last 30 years, has had a history of doing acquisitions of much larger companies. So the most recent one is he, uh, the company known as Eldorado Entertainment wound up buying Caesars, mm-hmm. And Caesars was about twice the size of El Dorado. So when you look at Xerox, right, they're largely in the large commercial printing business. They sell large copiers and office equipment to big companies. Mm -hmm. HP, of course, is in the personal Personal. computer space. So they're very complementary businesses. And Xerox's CEO believes that, you know, they can take $2 billion out of the business and make this profitable. It's, it's it's going to be a stretch. Xerox still is going to have to borrow a lot of money. Citibank has stepped up and said they'll help fund this. But Xerox has very little debt today, and it would put a lot of debt on their backs, you know, at a time when obviously there are a lot of questions about what's happening in the economy. Um, HP's shareholders uh, have popped up the stock. Xerox's shareholders have popped up the stock. So there appears to be some signals from the market that both shareholders liked the deal and would be willing to allow the deal to go through. HP has not sent any negative signals that it's not for sale. It basically said, you know, we're open to any and all ways to increase shareholder value. So as we sit here today, there's a reasonable chance that this deal could happen. It's just fascinating to me
1: because I think of these two companies as... Um, not really being able to bring something to the market that I think is going to be compelling in five to ten years. I mean, granted, you know, we talked about the the big printing presses within corporate, but HP's market share within the personal computing space is pretty narrow. Uh, you know, I mean, now they're they're venturing into Chromebooks and things like that, but I mean, outside of that, I don't see them. Uh, the, the challenge from Dell is real in that space. So I'm I'm actually fascinated to your point that both sides seem to be
0: excited about this, but maybe this is their way of you know, last throes of survival kind of thing. I, I really think that's what it is. I think they both see that this is a shrinking market and, and who knows when the inflection point really kicks in and, mm-hmm. you know, paper becomes a, a memory. Uh, but I think it's just for them taking, taking cost out of a shrinking business and, and doing whatever they can to sort of consolidate. But I agree with you. I, I mean, I just can't imagine any novel innovation. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, I can't remember the last time I even had a a memory of Xerox and that's not to denigrate them, but they're operating in, in the back of, you know, law firms Mm -hmm. and libraries and research centers. And I just, the brand just doesn't ever, you know, cross my mind anymore. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable thing to see. So HP had a hell of a run. I mean, HP Enterprise still continues. It's way behind in the cloud. It's way behind in so many different areas of, of enterprise tech compared to Amazon, compared to Google, compared to others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the HP name could could completely disappear and soon. Wow. From the and it's just it's an example of, you know, when you're playing in the world of innovation, there's just there's no certainties. So it's just you, you either you either disrupt or die. And I don't know how else to end this episode.
1: Yeah. Well thanks, Mike. I mean, on that note, I think uh, we can jump to three things uh, when we come right back from break. We'll be back. We're back, so Mike, let's get into it. Give me the three things. What you got for me?
0: Yeah, so let's try to connect to a couple of recent episodes. So first of all, you know we've we've been out of studio for a couple of weeks. It's always great to be back in studio with Nikiso and Likewise. a shout out to our man Justin, our audio engineer over there who keeps it all real for us. <laughs> um, the response to the female entrepreneurship episode has been stunningly positive. So. To all the female entrepreneurs and founders out there, thank you for all the great feedback that you've given us, both verbally and in the uh, the ratings and rankings that you've attributed to us. We're going to continue to talk more about female entrepreneurship. We're, we've got some women on tap that Absolutely. will will be role models that I think you'll be inspired by. Stay tuned. So, with regard to just the connection, so articles this week, it turns out as. As uh, women continue to rise in the ranks of business, they're also pursuing professional development. And for the first time ever, if you look at the top 50 global business schools, women now occupy 40% of all seats in MBA programs, and in some schools like Washington University in St. Louis— a full 50% of all of the seats are occupied by women. So wow, we've gotten to a fantastic. point where, you know, women are not just, um, you know, starting companies, but they're, they're investing in themselves. They're investing in their professional skills, investing in their futures. So it's a remarkable thing to see because I can tell you that when I was at business school, it was, even though Yale had a, a higher average than most, it was still a very small percentage of women that were in the seats. Well, kudos to all the women that are doing yeah. that. That's fantastic. A second episode I want to connect to is we recently had Patrick Mullane, who was the executive director of HBS Online in the studio. And it was just announced that the current dean of Harvard Business School, Natin Noria, who's done a remarkable job there in transforming the school over 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, just announced that he will step down. And as they were talking about the legacy of Noria and some of the greatest accomplishments, one of the first things that was cited was the ability to create HBS Online. So if you've not... If you don't know about Harvard Business School online or if you're curious and wondering why, of all the incredible things that Dean Nori has done is being cited in The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times, we'd redirect you back to the episode with Patrick Mullane, uh, where he does a great job of kind of talking about why Harvard uh, has been able to, in, a, in just five years, educate more students, 60,000, mm-hmm, 60, than they have over the entire 100-year history of the school in, in, in the analog world. Excellent. And then the last one is our good friend Mark Zuckerberg, who's having a difficult year, a difficult two years, a difficult three years. But, you know, just (laughs) last Friday, I picked up a couple of newspapers and there was a very lengthy article. I believe it was in the New York Times talking about how how odd it was that of all of the regimes that you would think would be monitoring and governing Facebook, the attorney general's office of the state of California was the odd man out. Mm -hmm. And either uh, Javier Becerra was goaded into that through being shamed or he was planning uh, this announcement. But, you know, early this past week, uh, Becerra had basically said is, uh, I've had enough. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. We've been asking Mr. Zuckerberg and team for documents and testimony forever. And they have been stalling to the point where we have lost our patience and now the state of California is suing Facebook. So they're now in a long line between the behind the EU and multiple committees in Congress and the Senate. Um, I think it's going to be a really challenging road ahead for Facebook. And of course, while we've been away, um, so many of the significant people that announced their support for the Facebook. Uh, you know, cryptocurrency called Libra, including MasterCard and Visa and PayPal and others, uh, have basically said, I think we're going to step out of this. So I think it's just an insane time for Facebook to think they're going to get support from any significant companies. They're toxic right now. And um, they can, they only have themselves to blame. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what will happen with Facebook. Obviously, Zuckerberg created a lot of controversy by um telling the world that he will not in any way censor political ads, even though if there are well-known untruths in them. And, you know, in an example of the incredible sense of social consciousness that millennials have, Mm -hmm. um, the employees of Facebook signed a petition and walked out, and Zuckerberg said, thanks, but we've got it from here. And although I know that you all would rather us, you know, censor these and and, uh, make sure the truth is being told— we don't want to get in the way of making money. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I've got for this week.
1: Well, I got to tell you, Mike, I say we were, we were talking just about leadership in this entire episode, right? And, uh, and there you
0: have it. There you have it. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. I, I, I think you nailed it. Yeah, or lack thereof. Or there lack you have thereof. it. Yes. Well,
1: Mike, as usual, it's been fantastic. This has been a great episode. I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're looking forward to coming back and speaking to all of you listeners. Thank you for supporting us. We're out. This podcast is recorded at Cybersound Studios in Boston and your support will keep paying for studio time. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash disruptive innovation. Also, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love to hear from you and appreciate the feedback. Thank you and keep listening.